If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to the book of Deuteronomy. The primary text that we will be dealing with this morning is Deuteronomy 15 through 16, 17. We come today as we study through the Ten Commandments and especially how Moses is explaining the Ten Commandments to us through the word in Deuteronomy. We come now to the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment is likely the most difficult commandment. It is the commandment that Christians likely disagree on the most. Christians, you are probably all with me when we say that murder is wrong. We shouldn't murder. We're probably all together when we say things like stealing is wrong, you shouldn't steal. As a matter of fact, it's very easy to sum up those commandments and to say that those commandments are true today. We likewise come together and say adultery is wrong. You shouldn't commit adultery. But when it comes to the Sabbath, Christians have a multitude of different responses to what the Sabbath is, what the primary importance of the Sabbath is, what we are to do with the Sabbath today. I'm happy to tell you I'm not going to deal with any of that. <laughs> We've dealt with it in part when we went, worked through Colossians. I think that the New Testament is very firm on this, and, and I am not alone, although I am certainly not in the, well, the church is not unanimous on this, but when Colossians 2.16 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, I take that very seriously. I don't think that the Sabbath rest that was prescribed in Deuteronomy and in Exodus is still for us today. I don't think that this is a commandment that is fit for us today in the way that it's commanded. What I do hope to impress upon you is the reason why the fourth commandment is there and the overarching purpose of that commandment for us. It is something that we need to keep in mind. It is something that we need to keep, although not the way that many think they should. In order to set the context for this, let us go and read back in Deuteronomy 5. We'll read Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15, as this commandment is given to us. Deuteronomy 5, beginning in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is with you within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is the word of our God. As we have progressed through the commandments, we have been showing how Moses is explaining the commandments. We've done one, two, and three specifically. In three, and not misusing God's name, we pointed out that in chapters 12, 13, and 14, there is a high emphasis in Deuteronomy, which we had not found before, specifically on the name of God. Likewise, then, we would expect some sort of in implication that in 15 and 16, we ought to be thinking in terms of the Sabbath. And indeed, we have that. We have a repetition of sevens all over the place in 15.1 through 16.17. Sevens, sevens, sevens continually come up. If you go back to Leviticus 23, you can find that number these feasts and the Passover and even the sabbatical years were already linked to the Sabbath in something like Leviticus 23. So we are not wrong to think 
that this is telling us something about the Sabbath. Today we're going to look at what Moses explains about the Sabbath to the people of God before we draw some conclusions about this for us today. The first thing that we find is that the Sabbath is meant also to be a release from poverty. It is a release from poverty. Beginning in verse 1, we read in the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it. But whatever of yours is with you, your brother, uh, whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall be open, you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficiently for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be any unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year is near, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly upon your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and with your heart. Shall, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all the work that you do and, and undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. When you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed, You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is very well off with you, then you shall take an all, Put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forevermore. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired servant he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. It is clear when you read the actual commandment back in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that one of the emphasis of the rest that God is telling them to take weekly is a rest from labor not just for the people, not for those who had hired servants who might be able to do the work anyway. It is clear from that passage in Deuteronomy that it is a, a rest from toil and labor not just for people who could afford to rest, but for all people. Deuteronomy goes out of the way to make sure that you mark male servants and female servants twice 
not only once in verse 14, but twice, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. But God is not fooled. People don't just need a weekly rest. They need rest from more than that. A weekly rest does not rest the loans and the burdens and the debt that might accrue upon people. It doesn't rest them from toil and labor that might exist over the top of them because they have come upon hard times. And so there is a release from poverty. It's not very clear in Deuteronomy how much of a release there actually is. It is unclear whether this is a total release of a loan. So if you grant a loan to somebody, it's not clear that in the seventh year, all of that loan is given away or if it's simply what was due to you in that seventh year. However, regardless of how you read it, it is clear that in that seventh year, you are not to collect from that brother, thus easing his burdens, easing the debt that is over him. It's important that this first seven is a cycle so that it doesn't matter when you enter into the cycle. If it began in the year 2000, by the time 2007 comes along, if you grant a loan in 2005, 2007 is still the date for it. There is a release from the burden for those people. For slaves, it works a little bit differently. It is not a certain start date, but that start date begins when that man or that woman is serving you. But the exact same position is there. Seven years he will serve for you and then you are to let him go. And not just let him go, but you are to lavish upon him goods. It is clear that God cares about releasing burdens from people, specifically from the poor in the land. It is meant, the Sabbath is meant more than simply a commandment to be kept. It is meant to imply that people ought to have a heart and a longing for the poor that are in their land, to support them, to help them, and to do good for them. One of the best places to see this in the New Testament comes in a very odd place. In the book of Galatians, specifically in the second chapter, Paul is recounting a story between him and the three pillars of the Jerusalem church, James, John, and Peter. And Paul shows up with a couple of people, one of whom is Titus. Titus is an uncircumcised Greek. And Paul is presenting his gospel to the apostles so that he can make sure that he has not run in vain. He wants to make sure that the church collectively with the pillars are with him on the affirmation of the gospel that he preaches. And so he brings Titus along with him and eventually in their meeting, he moves Titus up to the front and says, this man is uncircumcised. Should he be circumcised? Now in my head, Titus has no idea that this is going on and he is shocked by the whole thing because I think that's hilarious. But he might've had a very good understanding of why he was there. Paul looks at him and says, should this man be circumcised? Titus says very clearly under his breath, no. And the apostles agree. They look at him and they say, no, no. He is a full Christian without the need of circumcision. It is an immensely important event. It means that the work that Paul is doing and the work that is happening in Jerusalem, the entire church is unified on. The gospel was at stake here. Paul says several times the gospel is at stake in this meeting. The church has affirmed, the pillars have affirmed what I am doing and I have affirmed what they are doing. We've shaken hands of fellowship. They know exactly what's going on. And then in verse 10, Paul slips this in. After this incredibly important meeting, apparently totally unconnected to anything else that's going on in Galatians, Paul says, they asked only that we would remember the poor of which I made every effort to do. That is, as they are sending Paul out to preach the gospel, 
they ask him to remember only one thing, that you not forget the poor. And, And likely that was pointed back at Jerusalem itself. But it's clear that tied in with the issue of the gospel, as important as the issue of the gospel was, just as important in Paul's mind and just as important in the Jerusalem pillar's mind was this issue of caring and remembering about the poor. It is a gospel issue. If we are to be Christians who care about the gospel, we must care about the poor. Secondly, there is to be a remembrance of purchase a remembrance of purchase. We've talked about the Passover and in the first eight verses of chapter 16, we read of the Passover again. Chapter 16 of the book of Deuteronomy says this, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat No leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. All that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days. Nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer a Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice. In the evening, at sunset, at the time you came out of Egypt, and you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Again, the emphasis here is on the work that they are not to do. Seven days this feast lasts. Seven days. You are to remember that God bought you. You are to remember that you are not your own. You are to remember that he made you a nation. You were nothing but slaves in Egypt and he brought you out to make you a great and many nation and therefore you are to celebrate the Passover. You are to celebrate it for a week and as we talked about and we're not going to linger here long but as we talked about previously that is immensely important because the event of Passover didn't take a week. The event of the Passover happened in a night. And yet, for whatever reason, God extends that one night out to a week of feasting, a week of eating affliction, of the bread of affliction at the beginning of the year, so that you can remember that he bought you. It is a remembrance of purchase. Again, there are so many links from this passage back to the actual commandment that we find in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 5.15, at the very end of that passage, he says, you shall remember just as the Passover reminds them that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You are to make that day holy because the Lord is holy and you are his people. Therefore, you are likewise to be holy. You are to remember that God has purchased you. Remembrance of the purchase. Third, rejoice in provision. There are two two festivals that are recounted from verses 9 through verse 17. 
And it is clear in here, something that is different from the Passover. You remember the Passover talks about remembrance. It talks about God's deliverance, but never in that passage does the word rejoice come up. But listen to how often rejoice and joy comes up in these passages. From the Feast of Weeks and the Feast (coughs) of Booths in chapter 16, verses 9 through 17. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the sanding grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast And you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. Because the Lord your God will bless you and all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of of, of the Lord your God that he has given to you. Quite often in the history of Judaism and, and so much of the difficulty that is surrounding these verses, there is nothing but duty spoken of. There's nothing but duty to be reminded of the people when it comes to keeping the Sabbath, that you've got to do all your work, and then on this day you can't do any of it. The Jews had to figure out how to handle these issues. The Jews had to figure out what were they supposed to do. These weren't just minor issues. We can sometimes read the New Testament and think that the Jews just wanted to pile on work upon work upon work upon the people of God, but they had real issues with these. There were times when the Jews were threatened with annihilation because their enemies knew quite well that they were unwilling to work on Sunday or Saturdays for them. They wouldn't pick up their arms and fight. And so quite often, the enemies of Israelites would line up against them, so much so that Israel had to figure out, how are we going to handle this? Do we fight on Saturdays, even though that appears to be work and save our people? Or do we lay down our lives? They were split. There were certain groups that thought, hey, if we martyr ourselves, certainly God will see our holiness and he will come down and vindicate us. If we lay down our lives, God will certainly be impelled to act to save his people. And there are others who said, no, 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 we spare him in the heart. These issues weren't easy. It's important to notice, though, that when we come up to the New Testament, Jesus also ruffled the feathers of these people because he was doing good work on the Sabbath, work that people would rejoice in. He purposely put off healing withered hands. He purposely put off healing eyes. Listen, no man was going to starve for one day by having a withered hand. He could have put it off to Sunday. Jesus was omnipotent. He could have gotten there on Friday. He specifically waited until Saturday so that he could make a point. 
There is good to be done on Saturdays. There's good to be done on the Sabbath. There should be rejoicing. God looks at these festivals surrounded by sevens, clearly with language that is reminiscent of the observance of the Sabbath, talking about male and female servants, talking about sojourners, talking about foreign among you. He says, you are to come, and in the abundance of what God has poured out to you, you are going to rejoice because God has been good to you, and so you will come and you will give of your good things. You will rejoice in the provision of what God has given to you. But saying this doesn't really encapsulate what the Sabbath was about. Certainly the question has to be asked, even though there are clear connections between this and the Sabbath, how does this all, whether we're talking about releasing from poverty, the remembrance of purchase, the rejoicing in provision, when we talk about all those things, how are they actually connected to the Sabbath? The Sabbath was Something observed every single week. Six days you shall work and the seventh you shall rest. Sure, there are sevens here, but what does the actual, how does this explain anything? Are are these not just new things poured on top? Are we just saying that there's a likeness here because of sevens? I don't think so. I think that these things accurately display what is meant by the Sabbath. I think the Sabbath in total is meant to be a rest in perfection. There's meant to be a rest in perfection for the people of God. The idea of perfection is not something that we simply bring to Deuteronomy. It's something that Deuteronomy implies on its own. Listen, seven, we're not going to talk about numerology too terribly much, but it's clear in Scripture seven is meant to be set aside as sort of a special number. It is a perfect number. It is a number that comes up all the time. We know this because we know that if you score a touchdown and kick the extra point, you get seven points. Therefore, it's perfect, right? We know that God cares about American football because it is the greatest sport. But we know that this this literature being filled with the number seven is filled with the number seven because it was the perfect number. There was an instrument of perfection here. But we get that in other places. Deuteronomy on the front part of chapter 15 and on the back part of chapter 16 that we read is surrounded by this concept of perfection. Notice what was said in verse 4 of chapter 15. There will be no poor among you. Which is, by the way, and a manner of reading, although a wrong manner of reading, directly contradicted by verse 11, which says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Which one is correct? Well, people come in and they explain it. They say, well, one is the goal. Right? The goal is for there never to be any poor among you. But the, and the second is the reality, that there's always going to be poor among you. That, that if you were blessed by God, and, and the goal is that you are still striving to get rid of poverty by doing these things, but nevertheless, they're always going to be there. I think that that is a horrible reading of the text. I think that Moses is saying, no, there will be no poor among you. Verse 5, if only. If only you will strictly obey. Being careful to do all that he commands... The Lord your God will bless you as he promised you. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. There is this idea that if you perfectly obey what God wants, poverty will be wiped out. That is not only present in the beginning of chapter 15, but at the end of chapter 16, at least the end that we read, notice this blessing that comes out of there. You shall rejoice in your feast. God will bless you in the produce and all the work of your hands that you will be altogether joyful. There is nothing but perfect joy. He will bless you. Why will he bless you? Back in verse 5, if you do what he commands. This sounds, by the way, a lot like chapter 28. 
if you do what the Lord God commands, there will be blessings poured out among you. There will be richness and fatness in the land. There will be milk and honey flowing. But if you don't, he will withhold from you. The fact that verse 11 exists here is a microcosm of what we've seen of Deuteronomy. Moses holds no qualms about telling the people, you won't do these things. We've noticed this in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. In the beginning of Deuteronomy, it's one of our arcs that God will fulfill his promises even though they will not keep the law. Here he says, if you keep my law, there will be no poor among you, but I know, I know you won't. And in verse 11, they will fall short. He has no doubt about that. What is very, very interesting to me is that if you were to go back to Exodus Exodus doesn't talk like Deuteronomy talks in the fourth commandment. Here in the fourth commandment, the very last thing that is mentioned is the fact that the Lord your God brought you out of the land of Egypt, but that is not what is mentioned in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus in chapter 20, what is mentioned is creation. For the Lord God in six days made all things, and then on the seventh day he rested. Now this isn't terribly odd to us, because him pulling people out of Egypt and his creation go hand in hand. We talked about that. Remember with the Passover. It is the first month. You are a new people. There is something of a new creation going on. There is the same old failure. It is important then also to see that these Passovers, these festivals are cyclical. You work for six days, you rest, but there is coming again work. Likewise, if you read chapter 16, you realize that there is a cycle not just of years in terms of when debts are to be forgiven and when slaves are are to be set free, but there's also a cycle in terms of how the year plays out. In the beginning of the year, what do you do? You remember your slavery. You eat the bread of affliction. You remember that God took you out and that he did not directly put you into the promised land. There are difficulties and there are struggles, but by the end of the year, what are you doing? You are altogether rejoicing. God has now brought you into the land. He has given you abundance. Your crops have grown. Your cattle are good. You can slaughter them. You can milk them. You can cut down the grain and you can make bread and you will feast and you will be joyful. But just like in the work week, after the rest, there comes more work. And after the feast, there comes affliction. The cycle repeats and it repeats and it repeats. It is not for nothing that in Exodus 31, this Sabbath is spoken of not as something important in itself, but as a sign. Exodus 31 Verses 13 and 17. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, have sanctified you. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Why? Why do they need that sign? What happened in creation God spoke, things came out. They were formed, they were made out of absolutely nothing. He created from nothing, just just a spoken word, just a word. Jesus Christ made everything from nothing. And then what did he do? What does 
chapter one of Genesis tell us he did. He ordered it. He created it and then he separated it. He formed it. He shaped it. He made what was formless and void into something. He separated the heavens from the waters, from the land. He separated the birds from the fish, from the the creatures on the land. He did this to order it. And then what does he tell the people? He specifically makes people separate from everything else on the last day in his image and tells them to do what? Multiply and subdue. That is, they follow what God did. They create and they order. The implication being that what God has done, you should do, for you are in his image. God works six days, there's rest. Had Adam and Eve done what they were supposed to do, there was rest for them. But they didn't do what they were commanded to do, and they fell. The people of Israel made new again. Again, the idea in Deuteronomy is if you do everything that God has commanded you to do, if you do what God has put before you, there will be rest for you. But they are unable to do it. Again, we've talked about this, and I pray that I'm not reading into it, but there is newness littered throughout this account. Certainly, we understand that Christ makes all things new, not in the way that he has simply called a new people out of Israel, but he has literally made them new again. And like Moses, and now even more so like God, he goes up on a mountain, he looks at his people, and he tells them to do what? You will go and you will make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. You will multiply and you will subdue. It is a creation account. He is making new people. The idea is that his people now can enter into the rest that Adam and Eve forfeited, that the people of Israel could never enter into. That cycle would always continue for them. There would never, ever be a true rest for them. There was always Sunday. There was always Monday. There was always more work. There was always more affliction. They would never get there. But now for the people of God, there is a rest earned by Christ. The book of Hebrews talks this way. Since it remains for some to enter it, that is the rest And those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he specifies a certain day today. He's he's quoting, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but he quotes Psalm 95, which we will read here in just a second portion of it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The author of Hebrews picks up on that bit today and he says that's really important. You know why? Because that day, if it says today, can't be when David wrote. It can't be when the book of Hebrews written, but it is literally today. It is April 30th, 2017. He specifies a certain day, today, speaking through David after such a long time as previously stated, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, if taking the land was their rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. That is not the weekly rest. That is the Sabbath rest. That is work in six days and then you're done forever. That is the rest that remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest 
has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and the spirit joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He says, don't harden your hearts. Don't be disobedient. Enter into that rest. And then for a good number of us who know very well, know very well who we are, we know that that is not a good word for us yet because we are not any different than the Jews. The ethical teachings of Scripture do not somehow make us more capable morally of entering into that rest. They don't make us capable of not being disobedient in the same way that Adam and Eve, in the same way that all of the Israelites who stood before Moses that day were going to fall. As a difficult word for us. And if you don't know it, friend, it is a difficult word for you. You will never, ever do enough to gain God's rest. You will always fall, and in that you will take on his curses. That is why the passage in Hebrews does not stop there. And the very next section of text is this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach his throne. Therefore, let us approach his throne with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. We have a high priest who not only offers up a sacrifice, he offers himself as a sacrifice. And he is able to sympathize and empathize with our weakness because he is perfect in all things. That means he has also been tempted in all things. He knows you. He knows you are weak. He knows you are frail. He knows that you will fall into disobedience, but you can enter into the very grace of God, the very throne room of God with confidence because you have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. You have a high priest who has conquered everything that keeps you away from God. Therefore, unlike the Israelites, therefore, unlike Adam and Eve, we can enter into that rest if we hold firm to our confession. But that rest is not for today. That rest is for some of us. If God tarries and if he gives us longness of beard, a long time away. Maybe not a longness of beard for my daughter, but for the rest of us. Our rest isn't now. John 9.4 says, We must do the works of him who sent while it is day, for night is coming, when no one can work. While we will enter that rest, knowing that Christ will give us mercy and grace in our times of help, that rest is not now. Today is a day. We work while it is day. Friends, now is a time of work, not rest. We are to make disciples 
We are to baptize them and we are to teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded them. We think of today as a day of rest. This isn't a time of rest for us. It's a time for the church to get to work. That is our calling. There is rest coming, but it is not now. Let us pray. Father God, we know that there is a day coming for us when we can rest. We know there is a day coming when we will be in a place where there is no more hardship, there is no more pain. The streets are made of gold, not because you are trying to show off your great wealth, but because gold is worthless. For all the needs will be taken care of. There will be no more poverty. All will be as you have said. There will be no pain. Your people will forever live with you, seeing before them their great redemption in both the lion and the lamb of Judah as his, sh- his light will shine forth in the temple. We know that we will exist among you to feast as your bride and with his bridegroom forevermore. We know that that day is coming to us. Therefore, let us work all the more that we may do what you have commanded to us. Let us not forfeit the work that you have given to us, but let us work diligently that you may look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servants. We ask for these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.